0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Tens of thousands march for science
2: in the rain. Hard to believe you'd have to protest in support of truth. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say on a Monday, April 24? How about it? Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Hello, hello, hello from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., The Bill Press Show booming out to you live coast to coast. Hope you had a good weekend. So good to see you today. I had a chance to uh, watch a lot of uh, good baseball, uh, maybe here in D.C. Watch the Caps. Uh, It was uh, time to recharge, refresh, get back in touch with your friends and family. And now today, time to dive into a whole new week with a whole new course of action. We'll bring you up to date on what's happening from your nation's capital uh, just down the street. Uh, in the, at the Congress, which comes back today from its two-week break. Senate is back in today. The House is back in tomorrow. Uh, and what's happening down at the White House? Looking at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash Show. And we look forward to hearing from you, as always, on Twitter. Your comments on the news of the day, let us hear from you on Twitter, at Show. We'll dive right into all the big stories of the day. Government shutdown looming on Friday. Before Friday, Donald Trump promises to deliver on health care reform, repeal of Obamacare, I don't call that reform, and tax reform. He also schedules a big campaign rally to to compete with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And Bernie Bernie supports an anti-choice Democrat. What's that all about? We'll find out. But first.
3: This is the okay.
2: Full Court
1: Press.
3: All right. Just a couple of the stories making news. Well, it wasn't just Bill O'Reilly, according to a conservative talk show host Debbie Schlussel. She says that she was harassed by Sean Hannity. Another story coming out. She sat down. For an interview with Pat Campbell on Friday and she says I know
2: her. I've met her. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she's
3: a she's a name. She's a conservative commentator. Right. She says that and she used to work for Fox <laughs> News, by the way. She was Maybe a contributor to Fox Anyhow, News. Okay. She says that Hannity invited her to his hotel room two times. Once when they peer together, when they appeared together for one of his programs. And then another time, after a book signing that he was doing, he, according to Schlussel, said, why don't you come back with me to my hotel room? And she said, no, I have to get ready for the show. Hannity pressed her again to come back to their hotel room. She says she refused. So mm, this is one allegation against Sean Hannity. He has denied it. We'll see if any more surface. It's usually how these things go. starts with one, and then it snowballs.
2: Donald Trump. Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity. Yeah. Uh, you can get away with it when you're president, but maybe <laughs> not when you're a TV
3: host. Yeah, apparently. If you have bought McCain Foods hash browns, frozen hash browns, you buy them at Harris Teeter or Roundies, you might have a problem on your
2: uh, hands. Oh, not a bat.
3: It's not a bat. Oh. It's definitely yeah, not is... a bat, but this is uh, <laughs> this is a problem with the hash browns. That might have pieces of golf balls in them. I'm not kidding. Of this course. is honest to God recall. They said that they've been sold in nine states. And if you have a bag of these frozen McCain Foods hash browns, they could be, quote, contaminated with extraneous golf ball materials. Is the plant, like, near a driving range
0: or well, something? Well, that's and... what
3: somebody has pointed out. So, like, they haven't given an actual reason for why there might be golf balls, but some people have said there might be. Either the manufacturing plant or the farm where they grow the potatoes might be near a driving range. <laughs> and if you've played golf with me, you know that sometimes balls veer off yeah. of the driving oh, range. Oh no. yeah, so right. maybe they got scooped up when they were digging up potatoes, but just be careful. Don't eat golf balls with your hash brown. <laughs> well, not unless they're really Don't eat golf chewed balls up. Right? <laughs> Still probably a bad idea. Yeah.
1: On TV and online. This is the Bill Press
2: Show. Hello, hello, hello on a Monday, April twenty-four, the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us uh, as we bring you all the news uh, of the day from our nation's capital and our studio on Capitol Hill. Part of the Young Turks Network joining you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's our channel, and you should be a signed-up member of our channel. Go there, register, and you will get updates from us all throughout the day, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Also looking on you on, at you rather, on Free Speech TV, hello, hello, and joining you all throughout the Chicago, greater Chicago area on the WCPT Yes, indeed. We're coming here again from our nation's capital, where tens of thousands gathered on the Washington Mall on Saturday in the rain uh, to protest on behalf of science, as usual. Uh, A very upbeat crowd, a very positive crowd. uh, Just standing up, somebody said, uh, why would you have to protest on behalf of the truth, on behalf of facts? You have to say facts matter, facts matter. Are important. Uh, there were uh, similar marches held all around the country, of course. It wasn't just in Washington, D.C., up in New York City. Uh, the crowd chanting about the importance of science. Science
0: is awesome. Science
4: is, awesome. Science is, fun. Science is fun. Science
5: is helpful <laughs> for, everyone.
1: for
5: everyone. There it is, <laughs> the
2: ABCs of science. Sure. Yep, hear my grandkids chanting that. Right? Yeah, right? There they are. Science is helpful, science is fun. No, science is... <laughs> oh, I forgot oh, the first I don't line. know that chant. That's no. a...
0: Science, mm-hmm. is, helpful. science <laughs> is helpful
5: for everyone. <laughs>
2: there you go. That's yes, rude. indeed. Uh, and here in Washington, D.C., leading the crowd, remember they had no politicians speak. Uh, they did have an excess of speakers, I think. The speeches went on for four hours before the march began. Uh, but Bill Nye was the Bill Nye, the science guy, was the uh, main speaker, the keynote speaker, of course, the star attraction. He's done so much to make science popular among uh, school kids or kids of all ages. Uh, Here he is lamenting the lack of support for science on the part of so many politicians.
1: Today we have a great many lawmakers, not just here, but around the world,
3: deliberately ignoring and actively suppressing science. Their inclination is misguided and in no one's best interest.
2: Uh, and this Saturday, of course, is the follow-up, if you will. This uh, la- yet yeah, this weekend, past weekend's march, the March for Science, uh, was focused not focused on any one specific branch of science, but on science in general and its many aspects. Next Saturday is the c- climate change march, focused ex- uh, precisely on that issue of the science behind the reality of climate change um which of course Donald Trump denies i thought the best sign that i saw of all uh was a sign that says um, what do what do Donald Trump and Adams have in common what they make up everything oh, oh that's pretty good very good very good yeah and of course uh Donald Trump marked the occasion by putting out a statement saying how much re- how much he respects science and believes in science yeah this is the man who has shut down almost every scientific inquiry in his budget would shut down almost every scientific inquiry that the federal government is now involved in. Uh, this is the man who said that the EPA's Office of Science and Technology has to take science out of the name of the of the uh, organization. They now are just the Office of Technology, no science. And of course, this is the man who, is, who says that climate change was invented by the Chinese. And appointed uh, the enemy of EPA to be the new administrator of EPA. Uh, yeah, nice try, Donald Trump. We know where you stand on science.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, and look, we know. That, that and we alone, certainly
2: know where you stand on the facts.
3: That alone is worth protesting what he's done to yeah, the EPA.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So it was a good. Uh, it was a good effort. Good march, and came in the wake also of a new report over the weekend about. The Donald Trump, uh, how good of a job is he doing? As we're approaching the 100 days, he is out there. By the way, have you noticed, which is true on this on many issues, that Donald Trump is talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he says, this 100 days is silly. I mean, you know, why, why do we keep that test from the days of FDR? There are more things uh, and there's more time and if you get things right. It t- will take more time. By the way, he's right about that. It is a silly test, and we ought to drop it a long—we should have dropped it a long time ago. On the other hand, Donald Trump is around every day bragging about how much he's accomplished in 100 days. So he keeps it alive as an issue. He said he's had the most successful 90 days—he said this last week—than any president in history, which is just simply not true.
3: It's just a lie. On Friday morning, he had tweeted, No matter how much I accomplished during the ridiculous standard of the first 100 days—and it has been a lot parentheses, including SC, meaning Supreme Court, uh, media will kill. That's how he put his tweet. So, yeah. again, like that—that that is classic both sides of his mouth. He's saying it's a ridiculous standard. It doesn't matter. And yeah, then he but, goes on to brag about what he's gotten done, including the Supreme
2: Court. Yeah. And so it's a good – but it is a good opportunity to look and see, okay, um, we've seen him now for almost 100 days. How's he doing? Not very well, uh, according to the latest um, – Uh, The latest CBS poll shows that Donald Trump had a 42% approval rating. 42% of Americans only think he's doing a good job. That is the lowest of any president in modern times. 53% disapprove of the job that uh, Donald Trump is doing. Um, His base still loves him, up in the 90%, but the fact is, Donald Trump has not expanded his love, his support among anybody else except his hardcore supporters, and even some of those are starting to drift away. It raises the question about whether you can really accomplish anything, or govern, or represent all Americans if, again, all you're doing is throwing red meat to your base, which is um, all that Donald Trump has been doing. Uh, at the same time, Politico asked um, in a in a poll with Morning Consult, okay, uh, what report card would you give Donald Trump now after 100 days? Very mm-hmm. interesting. How about an A? 16% of Americans said they'd give him an A. He's done A work so far. Uh, 23% would give him a B. 13% would give him a D. And 24% would give him an F, flunk him. So more people would flunk him than give him an A so far. I, I think kind of what this shows is um, the more you see of Donald Trump, the less you like him.
3: That's fair. Right? I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. And it also, I think, is is uh, kind of shows how he has been president, what he's done as president. Donald Trump has not been president for all of the American people. No, divide,
2: divide, divide. Just like his his campaign. He
3: is not leading the country. He's not showing the way forward for the country. He is speaking directly to his base and he's speaking directly to other Republicans. We just look at, again, he announced he's doing a big uh, rally this weekend in Pennsylvania. For what? Yeah. What are you doing? He's just going so that he can have uh, his people stroke his ego. Yeah. and that's what he's done this entire and, presidency,
2: and and uh, uh, you know, uh, stab the knife in the back of the Washington press corps.
3: Yeah, I think is, that's part of it too. Could, of to it be it. clear, yeah, but like, and w- on a he- very
2: practical level, a lot of reporters won't be going to the Washington White House Correspondents' Dinner because they'll have to be on the damn plane,
3: right, to go covering
2: covering, covering Donald Trump. He knows that. Yeah. He knows. He knows exactly what he's doing. Um, on the other hand, Donald Trump. A little setback for Donald Trump uh, yesterday. In France, yes, indeed, Donald Trump really wanted Marie Le Pen to win. He wanted a racist, nationalist, uh, extremist, right winger like him to win to keep this Trumpism alive on the national level. Uh, the French didn't go there. Sadly, she did come in second. Uh, but a big surprise Emmanuel Macron, who is an independent, so you have is this independent, centrist, who's very much for keeping France in the EU, very much for, uh, for stability there, very much for keeping the euro. and not going back to the franc. Uh, Emmanuel Macron came in first place. Marie Le Pen came in second place. Uh, the runoff in two weeks. But very, very, very interesting. And uh, I had uh, two emails from two friends in Paris, French friends in Paris yesterday. Uh, and both of them, it's interesting, sent the same uh, we use the same one word, OUF, mm. OUF, which is French for OUF.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Meaning, what a big sigh of relief. They dodged a bullet the first time and now all the other 11 candidates uh, have rallied behind, except for Marie Le Pen, all the others have rallied behind Emmanuel Macron so we can hope that just like happened uh, in the Netherlands when... Uh, the, what was and Geert Wilders, the right winger up there, the extremist nationalist, uh, ended up losing. Surprising people, they thought Trumpism would rule in the Netherlands. It failed, and um, we can only hope that Trumpism fails in France as well as a good sign uh, yesterday. But still scary. Still very, very close. She's still very p- powerful. But I think what the French did which uh, we Americans did not do uh, or democrats did not do is faced with an ext- with an outsider from the right. The French have elected have chosen to run against her an outsider another outsider, right? From the other side from the center, I wouldn't say from the left certainly with Macron. But unlike for our election, we had an outsider and democrats chose An establishment insider to run against the outsider. This is a mood that the American electorate was—this is a change election. They wanted somebody different. They didn't want somebody from the establishment, and their only choice was an establishment candidate or an outsider, Donald Trump. French have two outsiders to choose from, so this anti-establishment mood there can go in a more positive, in a more centrist, in a more uh, sane direction they're not limited to the crazy outsider, <laughs> I guess I would say. They have a rational, sane outsider <laughs> they can choose from, uh, which gives them gives them an advantage. And now we move into this week, this crazy week. Um, will there be, uh, moving up to the 100 days on Saturday, uh, and by the way, the same thing with— um, The stuff coming up this week is just crazy, let's put it that way. First of all, the government will shut down on Saturday, sorry, Friday, Friday, if Congress does not act. So we're facing a looming government shutdown. As part of that, Donald Trump says, okay, if you're going to keep the government alive and pass a continuing resolution— we have to have the wall has to be part of it. Like, Can you, okay. can you
3: imagine this is, this is the hill he's going to die on? This in other words, this he's saying,
2: to... in effect, Ugh. we're willing to shut down the government if we don't get money for the wall. I mean, they haven't said that directly, but that's what that's by saying the wall has to be part of it. That's what they're saying. Also, so that's Friday. Saturday is his 100 days. And Donald Trump also said last week that as part of my 100 days— which, by the way, again, as you pointed out, Peter, doesn't really doesn't count. Doesn't
3: really matter, yeah.
2: But he says, as part of his one under, he wants this week, this week, while they're trying to keep the government open, he wants health care, repeal of Obamacare. He wants that health care bill passed. And he said he's going to unveil his tax reform measure. And he wants that passed by the weekend as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so you follow that? We've got <laughs> this week, according to Donald Trump, we're going to repeal Obamacare, we're going to pass tax reform, we're going to put money up for the wall, and we're going to keep the government open. You know what? It ain't gonna happen. <laughs> but you hear all kinds of stuff again from the White House. And then at the same time, uh, at the briefing, I was at the briefing Friday, uh, Sean Spicer saying, well, health care...
5: Um,, well, maybe this week, or maybe not, if we can get it done next week, great, if we get it done the week after, great, <laughs> um, we're gonna get it done when when it's appropriate in terms of getting to that two sixteen right, <laughs> yeah <What? laughs> so okay,
2: talking about out of the both sides of the mouth again, but Donald Trump keeps saying, no, we're going to get it done this week, we' got, that. and there's some conservatives on the hill saying, no, we can we can pass a repeal of Obamacare this week. No, they can't. No, they can't. They might do something in the House. I doubt they'll even do that. They certainly will not get it through the Senate. There's um, plan
5: A and plan A. We're going to get this done. Yeah, there it is. March 23rd, by the way.
3: <laughs> well, not that long ago. Right.
2: And and again, about the 100 days. Sean Spicer, first of all, uh, he, he on Friday,
5: I uh, wrote this whole thing. Of, he says, look at, All that we have done. So far, we've passed 24 laws. We've signed 24 executive orders. We've achieved the first Supreme Court confirmation in 100 days since 1881. We've instituted tough immigration policies that have driven um, illegal border crossings to a 17-year low. We've removed more job-killing regulation through legislation than any president in U.S. history. So he rattles all that off. We'll get back
2: to that in just a minute. And at the same time, then he turns around and says, but it doesn't really matter because we're not counting.
5: There's a lot of things um, that that have been accomplished so far, and I think you're going to continue to see it. We're not looking at, like, a marker and saying, let's just rush to it and get to, to it over. I think day 101, 102, 103, 180, <laughs> 200, um, we're going to continue to press on. Right. So, so 100 days doesn't matter, but then again, it does matter. Day 101, 102, 103, <laughs>
2: 180, 200. <laughs> so... So we'll be talking more about this this week in terms of exactly what has Donald Trump accomplished uh, in, in the uh, 100 days. Now, the 100 days goes back to there'll never be another 100 days like it. FDR, who brought the country out of the Depression, and he did so with a f- unprecedented flurry of activity in his first 100 days, uh, it, uh, FDR signed 76 bills into law in his first 100 days. By the way, all bills of extreme significance. Uh, and I don't know how many executive orders he signed as well. Now, Donald Trump has had a flurry of activity, but what has he really accomplished? Uh, Glenn Kessler, who does a great job in The Washington Post, he's, he's their fact finder, right? So he he looked at Donald Trump's claims. By the way, uh, Donald Trump has signed 28 bills compared to 76 for uh, FDR. Thirteen of them disapprove of regulations put in place by Obama. So that's undoing something Obama did, which is not really doing anything uh, on your own. Um, he's, one of the bills names a Veterans Affairs outpatient clinic in Pago Pago. <laughs> That's one of the things Donald Trump is claiming as a, as a great achievement. Uh, another bill he signed allowed James Mattis to become Secretary of Defense, even though he hadn't been out of the military for five years. That's one that he claims as a great, great achievement. Uh, but, uh, during this time, he has also signed 24 executive orders 22 presidential memorandums and 20 proclamations. Again, yeah, you know, so you. So what? Yeah. It you signed count a proclamation yes. saying April is National Honeybee Month or something. Right. I mean, yeah, what does that do? And by the way, two of those executive orders were his Muslim ban, which never got off the ground. Very good point. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, you go all for two on that one. Exactly. You go on and on, and what Donald Trump, uh, and so far, he, (laughs) so uh, the Washington Post came up with a list of 60 promises that Donald Trump said, 60, that he said, use the words, we will accomplish this in our first 100 days. (laughs) Uh, Out of 60 promises, 60% of them, he hasn't even Touched, hasn't even approached sixty percent of them. Five of those promises he has broken.
3: I'm sure he'll get to all those.
2: Such as week. Go- by the way, such as going after China, right? As a yeah. as a currency manipulator. Yeah. Yeah. Broke that promise. Right. So uh, it's just all in all, uh, Glenn Kessler gives uh, Donald Trump uh the the biggest liar, you know, the liar with um, Politifact, it's liar, liar, pants on fire. Mm-hmm. With the Washington Post, the worst level is four Pinocchios. Four Pinocchios. Yeah, Donald Trump gets four Pinocchios for his. Think we're in good shape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. We're in good yeah. Shape. yeah, yeah. You're in good shape. This week yeah. is going to be insane, man. It, it, and it's almost kind of like the kid who didn't do their homework, and now they're at the big test. So they're going to try and cram everything in at the last minute, and. I don't know if Trump has paid any attention to how Congress works these days, but it's a pretty slow-moving process. Uh, I think
2: he's learning that, and he's very frustrated that Congress, uh, that Congress just doesn't jump right when he sa- well, they don't say how high when he says jump, right? Yeah, and, yeah. He really expected that he would say, "I want this done," and Congress would just do it. It doesn't work that way. Not even with members of your own party. Uh, one thing with that uh, we do know that we, uh, we wanted to clear up, uh, Peter, I know you talked about this on Friday. Uh, Jeff Sessions, um, just coming down on that judge, how, how dare that judge in Hawaii reverse or put on hold a Donald Trump order on, on, um, on the Muslim ban or, and on immigration? But of course, Jeff Sessions can't recognize that Hawaii is the 50th state of the union.
1: Uh, I, I really am amazed that uh, a judge sitting on an island
4: in the Pacific can issue an order that stops seeing the President of the United States
2: from what appears to be clearly his statutory and constitutional powers. An island in the Pacific. Yeah, by, by the way, it wasn't, Hawaii wasn't our 50th state, it was our 49th state, but it is one of the 50 states. So dumb. So yesterday on uh, This Week with George Stephanopoulos, George says, come on, Mr. Attorney General, can't you just say the name of the state?
5: Why not just call it it the state of Hawaii? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the president, um, nobody has a sense of humor anymore. Oh. What does that
3: mean? Yeah. What is wrong with these people that they keep explaining away giant gaffes or stupid statements by saying, "Oh, we were just joking." Oh yeah, it's really it's just sense of humor anymore.
2: No, nah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, what is he talking? What's the joke? No, just insult all the people of Hawaii, and uh, what? You don't have a sense of humor. What's funny about that? Am I? I mean, honestly, what's the joke? Only to a white racist from the South would you uh, would that be funny at all? Uh. And one other issue that's come up. Which is very, very important. Just want to touch on it quickly. And that is, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez, the new DNC chairman, off on a big unity tour yesterday, uh, or last week rather, and made many stops on behalf of progressive candidates. Uh, their unity tour sort of uh, came to a screeching halt, or, pro- or let's put it this way, provoked some disunity out in Omaha, Nebraska, where they had a big rally in support of the Democratic candidate for mayor of Omaha, his name is Keith, um, I'm sorry, Heath, Keith. Heath, not Keith, Heath Mello. Uh, and what happened is Mello is a great progressive, good guy, former state senator, uh, leading uh, a candidate for mayor. He's a Democrat. He happens to be a Catholic, and he happens to be, um, he's not pro-choice, but at that way, his Catholic belief. Uh, I'm a Catholic who believes just the opposite but that's the official position of the Catholic Church uh, and NARAL and um, other organizations have come out and said, um, Daily Coast, for example also uh, that no, this was a big mistake Bernie Sanders and Tom Paris should never have supported him if he's not pro-choice, he is not a real progressive he cannot get any support Democrats should not be supportive of him Support him. We ought to just stay out of that race. Even Tom Perez, when he got that criticism, backed off a little bit. Basically, said, "Oh, Bernie's the one who scheduled this. I didn't schedule this. I just went there with Bernie." Uh, but it's a big division, uh, and this is a, this is going to be. A, it's not a new question, but it keeps that question alive. Uh, and I got to tell you, I think that the purists who say. You can't support him because he is not 100% pro-choice. I've got to say, Mello has said, I will never do anything as mayor that would in any way, I have my personal opinion, but I will never do anything in any way that would interfere with any woman's right to exercise her right of choice uh, in his territory, which would be the city of Omaha. So he basically recused himself from anything to do with that. Um, but still, good neighbor Route or Daily Coast or some other organizations and you know what? Raises the question um, about you know who gets our support and who doesn't. And I think in this case, and I am one thousand percent pro-choice, that the Nebrask people are dead wrong. Um, I look, I want somebody who's hundred percent too, but who is <laughs> on every single issue? Who is? None of us. I mean. I feel very strongly about the death penalty, too. But there are Democrats who support the death penalty, and I'll support them. As long as they're good on every other issue, or almost every other issue. I feel very strongly about gun control, and, um, and about the need to have a ban on assault weapons. Uh, and even handguns, register all handguns. I'd go as far as you can on, on gun safety measures. But there are a lot of Democrats who, who are not there with me. I'll still support them, even though they're not... If as long as they're right on most of the other issues. And the same thing with uh, choice and the same thing with abortion. Yeah, I think that's the only real progressive stand. But uh, I'm not going to cast somebody out in the darkness because they don't agree with me a thousand percent even on that issue. So I think Bernie's right. It, and we're, if we're going to elect progressive candidates to state legislature, to city councils, to governorships and to mayorships around the country, some of them are not going to be pro-choice.
3: Here's the here's the I think a real this serious is issue. Here's a real serious issue that Democrats have to confront. What happens when you find a voter who is open to your ideas, but not every single one of your ideas? You know what I mean. Yeah. And I think that's been a real problem for Democrats, not just in this past election, but in elections pa- before this one. There are a lot of Southern voters who you're going to find are pro-life or pro-death yeah. penalty. Yeah. yeah. But also, uh, these Democrats aren't speaking to them, just because of that one issue. So, like, abortion? That's a really big one, and I think it's it's a huge Huge. mistake that there's a Democratic politician who will not say that they are pro-choice and will not get on board with that. I get that, and I think that's total BS. And if you want to be mad about it, you can be mad about it, and that's a totally fair point. But to cut somebody out completely because they don't agree with every single one of your issues is something that has snake-bit Democrats in the past. Yep, yep.
2: Uh, And if we're really the Big Ten party, um, can't make the tent a little tent. We're going to take a break and talk immigration next with a lot going on in this area. Yeah, Jeff Sessions was on the warpath yesterday about the uh, sanctuary cities. Priscilla Alvarez joins us, assistant editor at The Atlantic. This is her beat. We'll find out
5: more from her coming up next. Day 101, 102, 103, 180,
1: 200. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, you bet it is The Bill Press Show
2: on this Monday, April 24, Washington, D.C. is where you find us, but we are actually... That's where we start out. We end up alongside of you, wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours, whether you're watching us, or joining us on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show on Free Speech TV or on WCPT out in Chicago. Good to have you with us. And we're brought to you today by Amalgamated Bank. Yes, uh, as a proud progressive looking for a bank where you can uh, bank and k- still keep your head up high, well, look at Amalgamated. AmalgamatedBank.com is their website. For almost a century now, Amalgamated has been the leading bank of choice for progressive organizations, a lot of labor unions, and progressive individuals nationwide. You too can bank wherever you live in the United States at Amalgamated by going to AmalgamatedBank.com and be a proud progressive at the same time. Yes, indeed, Attorney General Jeff Sessions out there yesterday warning Um, Sanctuary cities are repeating the warnings of sanctuary cities uh, that uh, the Department of Justice is going to be cracking down on them and pleading with these sanctuary cities to reconsider. Our urge California, New York, and other jurisdictions to reconsider. Our federal law enforcement officers and prosecutors stand ready to work with you. If you'll just deport everybody that... (laughs) It comes your way, who is undocumented. We'll work with you. Priscilla Alvarez covers uh, immigration issues for The Atlantic. Joining us in studio. Hi, Priscilla. How are you? Hi, how are you? So what is Sessions up to and how are sanctuary cities responding?
4: Well, so, so this is part of a broader effort by the Justice Department to crack down on sanctuary cities and also to... Um, sort of execute the directives uh, from the president to crack down on immigration. So what we're seeing from Sessions is this. Um, He's threatening to pool federal funding from sanctuary cities. A lot of sanctuary cities um, are sort of posturing against that, saying that they will stay as they are. um, They'll continue to protect immigrants. But something else that Sessions is doing, and he did, um when he visited the Arizona Mexico border was saying that he was going to bring on more immigration judges and this is again part of that larger crackdown um so that they could Carry out removal proceedings and deport undocumented immigrants, and this is a really big issue um, for the Justice Department. As I reported last week, there are more than five hundred thousand cases pending in immigration courts. So, exactly yeah, it's a big number. Um, and so, what uh, Sessions is trying to do is bring on more judges, judges in the next two years to go through those cases. Um, but I was talking to an immigration judge who recently retired. And he told me, you know, uh, the he wants to bring about, uh, you know, I think it was uh, 175 uh, judges on. And that would only, I mean, a, a totally fully productive judge would only be able to get through about 750 cases. That's after training for about one to two years. If you do the math, mm. it's just not enough to get through uh, just simply the backlog. It would take years to get through the backlog alone. Um, but what they're trying to focus on here is the people that are detained. That is, the people that they are arresting um, and that they are putting in detention centers and getting their removal proceedings going and having them deported. But this is a really long process. It's, yeah. it's not yeah. as easy as just uh, deporting whoever you see. Um, I think the Trump administration has sort of tried to alleviate this by expanding expedited removal. That is, immediately removing someone um, it used to be within 100 miles of the border in two weeks in the country. Now it's anywhere in the United States, and you um, have to be here for uh, up to two years. Um, so that really expands that criteria. Yeah. Um, but, it's a much,
2: much bigger net.
4: But there is, a, I mean, I think the majority of the undocumented immigrants in the United States, and this is something that the Migration Policy Institute has done research on, um, they've been in the United States for more than a decade um, so a lot of people are actually outside of um, this expedited removal criteria, um, and that would create um, a bigger problem for the courts, and then uh, sort of a strain on the courts would mean uh, sort of delaying those deportations. Well, one
2: there's a very practical uh, aspect of this, it seems to me, when listening to you spell out what Sessions wants to do. Where are you going to find 175 judges?
4: Well, so these judges are all across... I mean, well, right? but, but this these is part not of the problem. These are not kids just coming out
2: of law school.
4: No. So these are judges that are actually placed in other parts of the country. And this is something that the Obama administration did as well after the wave of Central American migrants that came in 2014. Right. And they relocate them. So you have a judge, else like we, uh, the judge that I spoke to had been in Arlington. He was in the Arlington Immigration Court. And he was redirected temporarily to go to the border and, um, you know, prosecute those or, you know, preside over those cases.
2: But then they're leaving a workload behind.
4: Exactly. And that's where we see problems because at this I mean, point. you can't
2: just poof. I've got 175 judges, right? Yeah. You know.
4: And and to be clear, this problem really ballooned under the Obama administration. That's where we really saw the big uh, oh, yeah. the mushrooming of the cases. Oh, yeah. But this creates a bigger problem in the sense that um, there is more pressure and there is also – that it kind of scra- it scraps the priority system. So now we're taking – um, arresting many undocumented immigrants who previously weren't targeted, and that creates a bigger strain. Um, but essentially, if you're moving cases, if you're moving judges around, um, you're inevitably going to have to delay cases. And at this point, the number that I'm hearing is cases being delayed out to 2022.
2: So, um, so just to to clarify, these yeah. these immigration courts and these immigration judges are deciding deportation issues, correct? Right. So these not, are removal these proceedings. These are not criminal courts.
4: No, so these are removal proceedings. Removal proceedings, proceedings. Yes. okay. And so to,
2: in the meantime, sorry, yeah, while, yeah. while they're, just to understand, while well, all of our friends understand here, uh, listeners and viewers, um, th- while their case is pending, they stay in this country. That's right. Where? Are they locked up? Or are these?
4: So that, that uh, a little bit of both. So they can have an ankle bracelet. Um, so that's something that we've seen. Um, they can be locked up if they are convicted of a crime, uh-huh. um, sure. and they can also be given temporary stay, so they can stay in the country, which is what we've seen in some cases when there's you know the use of a fake social security number, where they instead they're not deported, but they check in with officials. Um, every like so this often. woman
2: out in exactly. Phoenix, I think, right? Who, yeah, that's right. Checked in as she was supposed to, and then ended up.
4: She was deported. Yeah. Deported, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's it's quite a problem. Um, the Department of Justice sees it as a problem. Sessions has acknowledged it, um, and I mean,
2: all right. Now that's but that's uh, uh, that, uh, I'm glad to hear about that. But that's not the sanctuary city problem. The sanctuary city problem is
4: exactly yeah
2: that they're saying they're going to withhold money. Is it a lot of money f- that these cities get um, from the federal government that would, would really have an impact?
4: Well, so the Department of Homeland Security um, does have some funds. It is sort of a precarious situation because some funds actually go to law enforcement and you wouldn't really want to withhold money <laughs> from law enforcement. Um, well,
2: that's and- a catch-22. Yeah, I bet I bet a good chunk, and you, of course, of the federal money going to any cities would be to help their... Law enforcement, police departments,
4: Um, other funds. We need congressional. They're not going to cut those off. No, and so it's it's It's, withholding federal funding could possibly make a dent, but they can't um, withhold all funding. And then also it affects other parts. It can affect education, et cetera. Um, And then you wouldn't want to see a city. No, I've seen that that.
2: San Francisco, Chicago, New York, L. A. Have all stood up and said, you know. We're not gonna. We're not gonna go along with this. We're gonna continue to be the sanctuary city that we are proud to be. Um, have any cities just capitulated and said, "Okay, we'll throw everybody out because well, we need your money"?
4: To an extent, um, Miami-Dade County had a situation like that where they decided to um, sort of abandon that policy.
2: Really? Um, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh,
4: Miami-Dade County is an interesting situation. Um, just it's a foreign
2: country, anyhow.
4: But there's a lot of divisions there among immigrants. You have Cuban Americans, Mexican Americans. Yeah. It's yeah. a different, it's a different ball game, and we saw this during the election as well. Um, but that is one of the places where we've seen that happen. Um, otherwise, we're sort of seeing this uh, this stance against uh, Trump's immigration policies. Um, and there's a lot There's a lot of factors in, in immigration. So you have a little bit of the, the removal proceedings problems and the backlog. You have sanctuary cities. So where they decide to hone in their efforts will be interesting to watch.
2: You know, what a change. It wasn't that long ago that everybody was talking about immigration reform. <laughs> it meant different things to different people, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But remember the gang? Wasn't it the Gang of Eight? Yeah, in 2013. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Republicans and Democrats, and Democrats working on comprehensive immigration reform George W Bush comprehensive immigration reform Lindsey Graham, John McCain, right And today nobody's talking about it at all
4: no and it's a it's a, yeah it's a tough issue It's something that Obama received a lot of criticism on because he focused on health care reform before moving on to immigration reform um, but at this point, uh I'm not seeing i'm not hearing much uh about and you
2: can't, it's hard to get uh going to the White House briefings it's hard to get a straight answer from the White House on the dreamers um it, it, where is Donald Trump on the ground where is the trump administration are they going to ex- i mean they there there was a case just recently w- in the last yes. week or so right where yeah. Uh, a dreamer uh, was, was deported. deported.
4: Yeah, so this is an interesting case because we've heard um, we've heard Donald Trump really kind of set a sympathetic tone for dreamers, um, and we don't really get a clear stance on where the White House is, other than the word sympathy. The so word sympathy is thrown around quite a bit um, because these were children that were brought by their parents at a young age. Um, what happened with that one case um, that we've heard of, where a dreamer was deported? Um, the Department of Homeland Security says that uh, you have to receive, you have to notify the government that you're leaving the country as a dreamer. He did not do that, and by leaving, um, they were able they they then have jurisdiction to deport him. Um,
2: he went home for a vi- or he yeah. went to see his family or mm-hmm.
4: something. Um, so this is where. God well, this yeah, is what right. we're seeing, right, with, with DREAMers, is that the Trump administration could crack down in this way. Um, you know, if you don't do something precisely according to the rules, then they have they, they, they certainly have the jurisdiction to um, deport you. But as far as what they're going to do nationwide with DREAMers, I mean, he recently said in an AP interview that they can rest easy with his immigration policies. Um, so we're a little bit unclear on what exactly he intends on doing, um, you know, he had said during the campaign that he was going to reverse it. It hasn't happened. Um, so that's the big unknown for now.
2: Yeah. And as long as he does nothing, protection for Dreamers stays in place. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, the only thing they could do is they could let the um, their statuses mm-hmm. expire um, and then not renew. That would be something that, um, instead of reversing the order, would just kind of let it, um, yeah. you know, yeah. on its own. Uh, but again, we're not hearing any direction on this. I think part of that is that um, he has always focused on, he's said the, he's focusing on the criminals. We've seen in the numbers that that's not necessarily the case, but at least with dreamers, that's uh, appears to be the argument.
2: Right. Um, I think most people would agree that someone who commits a serious crime, uh, who's came is undocumented immigrant audit. I think could certainly understand the argument, if not totally agree that they should not be allowed to remain here. But what is the level of serious crime that puts you over the line? Today? Yeah.
4: Well, today. Um, it could be a traffic it, ticket. It could it? be a traffic ticket. It could be that you were convicted of a crime, which is the same as the Obama administration. He notably said felons, not families. Right. Um, it could also be that you are charged with something but not convicted with that crime. Um, and so that is. Uh, where it, he has massively expanded the the criteria because, like you said, it could be a traffic violation. Frequently, we see um, social security number uh, fake social security numbers for working. That could also um, be uh, something working against them. Um, so yeah, that now uh, the let's put it this way: there are 820,000 of the 11 million undocumented immigrants who are convicted of a crime in the United States. Eight hundred and twenty thousand, mm-hmm. uh, according to the Migration Policy Institute. Um, so, but by expanding the criteria, that's Excuse only me one second.
2: Crime. I, I want to turn to my crack mathematician here, um, sitting alongside of me.
3: Uh, <laughs> Better not be me.
2: Uh, what percentage of eleven million is eight hundred and twenty thousand?
3: Are you serious? You're really going to ask me that question? You have a cell phone in your hand. I know. I know. I know. Or are you going to have to ask me again? Dude.
2: Okay. No, just while we're talking, you could figure that. All, right, all right, Listen, believe me, I couldn't even come close without this. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm just curious. I never saw that. I never heard that number before. Yep. So that convicted okay. of a crime of um, some crime.
4: Yes, but then not if necessarily
2: we're... what most of us would think of as assault and battery, for example, a serious crime.
4: Right. I mean, it. it, it, it It's the whole spectrum, right? right? Um, But what we're seeing now, which is the difference, is that you don't have to be convicted of a crime uh, to be arrested, right? Like you could be charged with something, but not convicted of it. um, And it it sort of, it really opens it up. And it's something that we are actually seeing. Um, The Washington Post last week reported that um, the number of undocumented immigrants that have been arrested with no criminal records has doubled um, from the same period last year. So that's about... Um, January to mid-March.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: so we are seeing a change in the numbers. I think at the end of the year, when we get the final reports, that's when we'll really get a full picture um, of what this Trump was, what this administration has done.
2: Yeah. So um, Donald Trump's uh, immigration policy uh, has become uh, front and center again this week because we're talking about a government shutdown. Um, the con- it will shut down on Friday unless the Congress acts. Uh, and the question is, is funding for the wall going to be in it or not? Um, Reince Priebus yesterday on uh, Meet the Press saying, we're confident there'll be some money in there for something. No, nope. I thought I thought it was Reince Priebus. No, who was that? Um, all right. I have Nick Mulvaney. Um, Mick Mulvaney, um, okay, let's, let's go try with, that.
1: Let's try with Mick Mulvaney. Shutdown is not a desired and it's not a tool, it's not something that we want to have. We want our priorities funded, and one of the biggest priorities during the campaign was border security, keeping Americans safe, and part of that was a border wall. And we still don't understand why the Democrats are so wholeheartedly against it. I know who I was thinking. I was thinking of Jeff
2: Sessions. It was Jeff Sessions who said, kind of, Reflecting, by the way, Donald Trump's tweet over the weekend, Donald Trump tweeted basically saying, you know, well, we'll find a way. They're not going to pay right away, but eventually sort of we'll find a way, which is a lot different than he said during the campaign. Jeff Sessions reflecting that uh, on this week yesterday.
4: I don't expect the Mexican government to appropriate money for it,
2: but there are ways that uh, we can deal with our trade situation to create the revenue Mm -hmm. to pay for it. No doubt about it. Right. Right. So is there what's your take? I mean, obviously, we've got a few days for this to play out. Uh, Do you think the Republicans will actually put money in this and insist on that and be willing to shut down the government if they don't get it?
4: So, yes, this is a crucial sticking point this week. Right. But uh, and Democrats are going to use it as well because they want uh, more payments for the Affordable Care Act. Now, to be clear, this is a precarious situation for Republicans because, um, as I reported a few weeks ago, Texas Republicans or Republicans uh, members of Congress, they, um, you know, they have said that they support border security. But for them, this is sort of a precarious situation because it brings in the issue of eminent domain. So that is that the government could take private property. And a lot of their constituencies live on the border, um, and they don't want the government to take their um, their land. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's like the sign of federal government overreach. Um, so this, I think that within the party, there's a little bit of tension of what right. exactly this means. Yeah,
2: I mean, just to be clear, that means, right, you just you say we're going to build a fence along the entire border. A lot of that property is private property. Right. These and, are ranchers. And the federal government would have to, they don't want to give, they're not going to give it to the federal government. They don't even want to sell it to the federal government. So the federal government would have to seize it, have to take it, eminent domain. Exactly. Which, by the way, Donald Trump, of course, used in Atlantic City to ask people to build his casinos, uh, was able to get the city to go along with it. So what this means, this would be great big government, just the opposite of what Donald Trump is supposed to stand for, coming in. See, taking property away from these people and building this this
1: wall.
4: Right, and the difference was that um, this is this also happened under the Bush administration, but they really built the wall a lot on the federal land, so they only came across yeah. it scarcely. Whereas yeah. now, most of Texas is where you want the most wall to of go, the and the rest that, of it is exactly. in private property. Exactly, and it's property. own private property. Exactly. Yeah. Um, also, the money that they're asking for is only a fraction of what this wall would actually cost. I mean, the estimates are around twenty one billion dollars. Um, so...
3: Which I think is low, by the way. I do, too.
4: Well, yeah, if you think about the riverbed I and mean, everything. If we're really
3: talking about a wall all along the southern border, there's no way that's going to cover everything. Right.
6: Yeah.
4: And also, these th- those are a whole other set of cases that you're dealing with at that point, with eminent domain, because even though the government can seize your land, um, you can fight them in court um, for how much, how much your land should go for. Um, so that's a whole other set of cases that can happen. Um, but... You know, it's early to tell. I think that there's a lot coming out this week. We're going to, you know, he said he hopes for arrival of health care, perhaps tax reform around midweek. So I'm not sure where the border wall is going to stand as the week progresses.
2: Yeah. And so I guess the fallback position is, well we'll put some money in for designing, right, or something, but for not I, for construction or whatever. Or
4: closing <laughs> gaps, there's lots of gaps also on uh in the wall, so maybe, you know, you close off a gap that there is, but we don't we don't know. I mean, And right Democrats
2: now. are saying, no, we don't want the wall in there anyway. No sh- any just deal with that separately, right? But this is just to keep the government going. Right. Not not to come up with Donald Trump's pet projects.
3: <laughs> it's, it's so crazy. Do you have a number? It's a, yeah. It's a seven point seven percent.
2: It's seven point so okay. Yeah. So safe to say, thank you. <laughs> See, I'm I'm impressed. But that of uh, this whole idea that Jeff Sessions says the whole thing be, be behind the sanctuary cities. That this that they're immigrants flooding across the border and and creating major crimes or committing major crimes here in the United States.
4: It's a small portion.
2: Is not true, right? Seven at seven mo- percent at most, and not all of them are serious crimes. That's that's that would be the next thing to find out, right? Right. So, um, and what is what is going on? At, we heard earlier um, Sean Spicer was bragging about the fact that the flood of or the flow of immigration is way way down. Um, is it? And isn't that also some? If it is, isn't that something that started under? Barack Obama?
4: Yes, it is under Obama. Um, We have seen less. Um, We also saw a dip in migrants from Mexico. We continue to see them from Central America. Um, And there's we can't really pinpoint the exact reason for that. There's a lot of factors like the economy in Mexico doing better, um, so people opting to stay. Um, We're also seeing reports from the Mexico border, um, the southern border, that they're also um, halting a lot of migrants from coming up. Um, So it's difficult to say what exactly is the reason for that drop, but we have seen a drop, and it did start under Obama.
2: Right. By the way, um, a little factoid that I noticed in the New York Times this morning. uh, You mentioned Mexico. Oh, here we are. As of 2014, I don't know whether you knew this. As of 2014, Mexican law requires that half of all candidates fielded by a political party in federal or state legislative races... Be women. I didn't know that. How about that? Interesting. Uh, <laughs> half of all the candidates must be of any political party puts up must be women. Now that is a good factor. I would suggest that instead of maybe attacking Mexico, right? <laughs> maybe we should learn a little bit from Mexico, and that's true of other countries as well.
3: That's great. I love it.
2: There it is. Yeah, I love that. Lesson for the day. I all like right. It. Well, we'll see. Uh, there'll be a lot of talk this week about uh, immigration, about the wall, uh, and as you mentioned, about tax reform and uh, health care. So glad you brought it in came in and put it all in perspective. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having Ocilla me. Priscilla Alvarez at The TheAtlantic, TheAtlantic.com. Amy Parnes and John Allen coming up next. Their new book is uh, Shaking Things Up. It's called Shattered. This is Telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks.
1: Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show.
2: Thousands and thousands turn out to march for science in the rain. Yes, indeed. And the big best sign of the day, what do Donald Trump and Adams have in common? They make up everything. (laughs) Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's a Monday, April 24. Great to see you today. The Bill Press Show booming out to you nationwide, coast to coast. On YouTube, youtube.com slash thebillpressshow, uh, and on uh, Free Speech TV, of course. Good to have you with us. Hope you had a great weekend, ready to dive into the issues of the day. And boy, we've got a lot of help here this hour. Uh, you probably heard about it. Who hasn't? The new book out about the Clinton campaign, Shattered, the title sort of says it all. Uh, and <laughs> the authors, John Allen and it's Amy farns in studio with us here for the entire hour. Hello, guys! Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. Joe. It's nice to be home. It's great to see you.
6: <laughs> nice to be home. I know. I, I do my podcast out of this studio, and <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel at home. <laughs> and usually, uh, when you're here, you're sitting in this chair. So, I, well, I can't. I can't really like. I I warm it for
2: you. It's nice. <laughs> nice nice <laughs> you would agree to take a uh, secondary seat today. Uh, happy to. Uh, He's and just
3: gonna take over the show here in a little while. I know. It's, I'm it's afraid It's a total mutiny. Eh?
2: And joined with uh, his partner in writing writing, this is the second Hillary book, the other HRC and now Shattered. Uh, Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi. Good. Thank you. Uh, Amy from The Hill, thehill.com, and of course John Allen, whose day job is Sidewire and columnist for Roll Call. Uh, This is, I can't wait to jump into this with you, but
3: uh, first. Oh yeah, I got
1: other news. This is other the news full from court press. press. I
3: got other news. Remember this guy, Barack Obama? He's going to be making an actual appearance today. It's the first time that yeah. he's had a public appearance since leaving office. He will speak uh, at the University of Chicago. He's going to give uh, a speech on civic engagement. He did point out it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. All about civic engagement. The the event is open to the public, but you have to get tickets to go. Uh, Quote, the event will bring together young leaders and students for a conversation on community organizing and civic engagement. It will not... Be an explicitly political
6: event.
2: But, you know, that was his last, remember his last speech as president when he went out to Chicago and gave mm-hmm. the big, that was all about civic engagement. I so. mean, this is
6: the dream of every community organizer and uh, and law professor that they could give a speech on civic engagement and thousands of people will show <laughs> yeah, right. up and oh, TV yeah. crews will show up <laughs> right. most of them do it in, in uh, you know, in, in relative absence of crowds.
0: Yeah.
3: Congratulations to Dr. Peggy Whitson. She has broken the record for the most days in space by a U.S. astronaut. The previous record was he- was set by Jeff Williams. He spent a total 534 days in space. And as of today, Dr. Peggy Whitson has been in space for 535 days. Jesus. So that is the new record.
2: But nonstop?
3: Yeah, nonstop. I mean, she wasn't... No, I mean, think there's a connecting <laughs> flight. I think you go up, you're there, man. I don't think... Able, she yeah. wasn't able to come back for the a weekend The courtesy lounge anything. up there is not great. No, she's been up there the whole time. Oh, God. That's a long time, man. 535 days? She's the Cal Ripken of space travel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good reference, John. Yeah. Congratulations to friends. Dr. Peggy Whitson. And by the way, we heard over the weekend that President Donald Trump has invited... The uh, Supreme Court justices over to the White House on Thursday evening to have dinner, don't which you, is a very weird move. Don't you
2: find that
6: strange?
0: A little bit. Yeah. It's a little odd, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little not odd. normal. No.
6: No. Well, M- that mildly disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Considering I, he's
0: the litigant. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah.
6: They're going to be deciding
2: cases where it's called ex parte.
0: Nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs>
3: That's
2: fair.
0: That's actually fair.
3: <laughs> well, we we got a, uh, an update to the story last night. Late last night, the White House has postponed. The dinner with the Supreme Court justices. They say that it was a scheduling conflict that has gotten in the way. Uh, The Huffington Post does point out that Barack Obama and Joe Biden did visit the Supreme Court in January 2008, just before they assumed office, but they didn't sit down to dinner or have them over to the White House or anything like that.
2: But you said something important before they assumed office. Before they assumed office, yeah. Going down to the White House. Right.
1: your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Monday, April 24, hello,
2: hello, hello, and welcome. Uh, It is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital and our studio on Capitol Hill. Hope you had a good weekend, ready to dive into the news of the day. This is the week, a week from hell, but uh, the government will shut down Friday unless Congress acts. And in the meantime, Donald Trump says... He's not only going to keep the government alive, uh, but he's going to pass tax reform and repeal Obamacare, all in order to have that accomplished by Saturday, which is the 100th day of his presidency, which he will celebrate not by going to the White House Correspondents Dinner, but by having a campaign rally in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What are we? a week! <laughs> <laughs> so we started off with two good friends who are very much in the news these days. Uh, Amy Parnes, columnist for The Hill and co author of Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doom Campaign with John Allen, whom you know and see often here on the Bill Press mm-hmm. Show. From Sidewire and Roll Call. Hey guys. Hi.
3: Hey. Nice John, to I just want to say I think it's uh very nice that you shaved for the book tour. Yes. <laughs> Our audience there <laughs> audience might
6: not recognize you. We but see. we assure you this is the actual John Allen. my my mom and my wife were both like, there's no way. They're like, you, you can't do four days or six days growth on tv like you've been doing so
0: it was that professor look he had going when we (laughs) did it for the first book too
2: we sat here in (laughs) disbelief uh last week watching the monitors and watching you on fox and friends and then on cnn and maybe who the hell is that
6: that who's that guy with the tie (laughs) the clean-shaven guy with amy (laughs) i'm I'm back in my nationals polo with at least a couple days growth so fair Okay, I'm not works. changing forever. <laughs> All right, I want to say two things first about this book,
2: okay? Okay. Number one, I'm willing to bet that I'm the only talk show host we go. that you will talk to who has read the entire book before they talk to you. Every single word.
0: Steve Scully actually read it.
2: I would believe C-span. that. C SPAN. <laughs> yes, I believe C-span, that. C no I mean. He's as big a nerd as I am. <laughs> right. Okay, good. All right. F- friend Always of I'm, everyone. I'm one of two. Uh, secondly, I a poli- you know I'm a political junkie. Mm-hmm. You've been to my house. I have a house of walls of politi- political books. I read them. I love them. I have to tell you, this is one of the best of all time. I loved <gasps> every word. Oh, it I is love great. You. It is. It, first of all, it's so well researched. Seriously, I'm I, I'm very so impressed. It's so well researched and it's so well written. It really is a page turner. I mean, it's 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 a great great story. But I have to ask you this: I know you're working on the second book about Hillary. This
6: is not the book you expected to write, is it? No, it's not at all. I mean, we we expected uh, we expected on election day that she was going to win. But I think we were prescient. I hope and lucky for sure. That when we started writing this book, we did what reporters do, which is that we just reported. Here's this thing that we saw that happened in public. What was going on behind the scenes? Here's this other thing that we saw going on and it didn't look quite right. What was going on behind the scenes for good good and ill? Um, And so we had a lot of really good stories about what was going on in this campaign. how they were thinking about things, how she was thinking about things, what worked and what didn't. I mm-hmm. think, you know, when the excerpts come out and, uh, you know, all the all the hot stuff is out there, like, really quickly, like, sometimes, um, you know, it's hard to – it's a long book, as you say. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's bad about how this campaign was run. There was a lot of stuff that was good about how this campaign was run, and it's in there. But I think the thing that was key for us is we really just focused on the reporting and didn't assume an outcome in our reporting and writing until after the election, yeah. personally, I'm watching the election. She's up by, you know, several points in the polls. I assumed she was going to win.
2: Right. Amy, you thought mm-hmm. you were gonna, the book would be about the successful, uh, the election of the first woman president of the United States.
0: Totally. And John and I have this great editor at Crown, Kevin Doughton. And when we were sending him uh, drafts of our book, he was basically questioning why. He was like, but you have all these flaws here. You know, she's going to win. How do you square that? Uh, And so we we just had to kind of stick to our reporting and uh, and tell the story that way. And I think I think that's why we have the book we have. You know, we didn't really need to scrap anything after Election Day. It actually made the story much better.
2: Uh, I saw The Washington Post today a little kind of, you know, Take I, I didn't agree with that review. It was a mixed review, let's say. But the New York Times was was over the, the Chico top. Chico
0: Kakutani <laughs> is what you want, yeah, and but she what, loved the book. Yeah, but yeah. what?
2: So the point that Post made is, well, why didn't you? Why write a book about Hillary? Why didn't you write a book about Bernie? Why didn't you write a book about Donald Trump?
0: Because I, we know. I mean, this is our second book on Clinton. We we own this turf, I think. Uh, and, Absolutely. And we wanted to tell you know that story, the continuation of the story that we told in HRC. Here's this really uh, sh- uh, tremendous policy wonk who basically is the smartest person in the room. How does that translate when she runs again for office? Does she learn her lessons of, you know, we, we talked about the hit list the first time and where she went wrong and how she kind of did this post-campaign autopsy in 2008. Um, did she learn her lessons? We wanted to answer all those questions in this book, and, and I think and we do.
6: And I think, arguably, she overlearned a lot of the lessons from 2008. Um, there were a variety, and we talk about it in the book, but like there are a variety of ways in which she, I think she looked at Obama in 2008 and thought everything he did was perfect, and looked at her campaign in 2008 and said and thought to herself, everything I did must have been wrong, and so she started trying to emulate the things Obama did, uh, which is not necessarily the right read of why he won and she lost in 2008. And I would argue. Yeah is not the, the exact right read that everything he did was perfect and everything she did was imperfect.
2: Well, one thing that, that came across to me is that she, um, by following that pattern, as you point out, she ended up attracting the people who voted for Obama in 2008 mm-hmm. but lost the people that voted for her right. in 2008. It's,
6: I've never seen any. Right?
2: So it was just like a switch. So all those white voters that she right. had in 2008 – went to bernie or to trump and then she gets the obama people but she's not
6: ahead yeah i mean it's the exact opposite of what you see with pretty much any politician which is they start with the base and they try to grow it and grow it and grow it and they never leave that base because they know that that's what supports them uh you see that with um with trump you know i mean his his approval ratings will go down but only to a certain point because there's 35 percent of the country or so that will like walk through fire for him um, Bernie Sanders, I think, is the same way. You know, he built out his base over years and years and years, and he never, he was never willing to abandon that base or abandon the things that, that, that brought them to him. With her, she was like, oh, in 2008, I had the white working class with me. I really am going to need yeah. African-Americans and Hispanics yeah. to win the delegate math because she saw Obama do that in 2008. She was like, she had his, the Hispanic vote in 2008 but not the African-American vote. She was like, I need to do that to win a Democratic primary, which is true. I mean, if you... If you can square away uh, voters of color uh, in a Democratic primary, you're going to win the Democratic primary. So for that purpose, it was very smart. However, abandoning those working class whites that had been with her in 2008 to do it uh, ended up costing her, I think, long term.
3: I think also, like, when you talk about the story and who had the more compelling story, I think that when we look back on this election, right, the Trump, the rise of Trump, I think, is going to be interesting. But I don't think Trump had some crazy surge or anything like that. I think this was a total loss by the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so I I think reading that book is going to be required reading for national Democrats Mm -hmm. like moving forward because it just shows how screwed up we are as a party sometimes as, as a Democrat. Because, you know, Clearly, she had a lot of flaws, like you were saying. Your editor kept saying she has all these flaws. How's she gonna win? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Democrats just said, like, "Oh, well, we got this." They got a little drunk with power, flew a little too close to the sun, and now here we are.
0: But they did but, that in two thousand eight, which was yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And but, you here she is. She became the inevitable candidate again without yeah, having. To I couldn't believe that. that we were there again. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Amy, there were points, many points along the way, where they recognized that they were not connecting with. White middle class voters.
0: Yeah, she even realizes it. I and mean, they never adjust. Yeah, I mean, she's, we talk right about this story um, in the book. She's flying with her one of her longtime confidants, Minion Moore, on an airplane post New Hampshire. <laughs> Bernie has just blown her out in, uh, in New Hampshire. And she's kind of, she's looking at the rise of populism around her and she's wondering what's happening. She can't really understand it. And she's, this is the first time we think that she's like vocalizing it. You know, that she sees what happened. She thought that she wouldn't, you know, her campaign um, chair, uh, manager told her maybe campaign a couple times in New Hampshire and then go somewhere else, go to South mm-hmm. Carolina, go to Nevada. She wanted to do that. Um, she didn't expect to be blown out the way she did there. And and I think that was surprising to her. And that was the first kind of gut check. Like, I, I really don't understand what's happening here. And,
6: and by the same token, in New Hampshire, it's interesting. <laughs> she insisted on going there, on meeting with voters, on she she's. It looked like she was going to lose, but she had the 2008 experience of coming back against Obama. Oh, yeah. Um, and, And I also think, you know, not only do I think, but our sources told us she kept saying, I can't give up on this state. I can't give up on states. This is going to be a general election state. And we saw in the general election she won New Hampshire by a whisker. It could have been that that, you know, but in the primary she couldn't have known which states were going to make the difference other than the handful of swing states, New Hampshire being one of them. It could have been that New Hampshire ended up being the difference. So, it, may, it was probably wise to go there as painful as it was to like learn how the people of New Hampshire who had saved her in 2008 were no longer with her in 2016. Um,
2: I thought the two most powerful stories in the book um, is
6: it, at the very beginning and the very end so let's
2: say the end until the end but at the very beginning um, it, when she's driving out to Roosevelt Island to give her to announce for, for, for president right. and still at that point she doesn't know why she's running. I mean, you have a phrase in there: she didn't have a vision herself, and nobody around her was able to give her one. That's no. almost word for word mm-hmm. what she said in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is stunning. Mm-hmm. This woman had been running for president for how long? At Decades. least ten years. At yeah, least at ten least. years. Right. Right. Yeah. And and it, you know, it it reminded me of the famous Teddy Kennedy Roger Mudd interview when he said, "Why why do you want to be president?" Right. And Teddy Kennedy couldn't answer it.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: Neither could she. Could she?
0: No. And and that was a problem for her in 2008, as I just talked about earlier. And I think, you know, in in this passage, she she brings in all these people like very Clinton, very Clinton-esque, you know, to help her kind of write the speech. And she they they still she brings in John Favreau, uh, Obama's chief speechwriter. Even he is frustrated, and by the end, he like throws up his hands and goes to Europe on business because he's just like I, 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 don't know what to do. He was used to just working with President Obama and maybe David Axelrod, and that was that was it, and that was their speechwriting process. Here, you had a million cooks in the kitchen, uh, you had speechwriters and advisors and pollsters and everyone kind of weighing in the way that they would on a tweet, um, and. And he was frustrated. And, and so I think there was no kind of core message. They didn't really understand why she was running. And I think that was why that speech was kind of all over the place. If you go back and listen to it, it's not doesn't have that, um, you know, the, that thing that you need. But
2: do you think, you know, I've run a couple I've managed just one time in my life. Right. I managed political campaigns. That's one of the first things I always told. A candidate, you got to know who you are, why you're running, and be able to
6: articulate it. It's, I mean, it's absolutely the uh, the the glue that unites right. candidates who win, right? Like, <laughs> like Bernie and, Sanders knew what way, he wanted the to candidate do. Candidate has to know that, right? right. And nobody it else. Can't can do it can't come from for anywhere the, else. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, they even wrote about uh, Dan Schwer and her chief speechwriter at one point sent a message to. Uh, to everybody else on the team uh, about how they had difficulty getting her. They couldn't find a message for her that she would embrace uh, and that she had difficulty and they had difficulty seeing the forest for the trees because, uh, you know, because uh, it was so so mangled at the top. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was for everything, for so many things, which made it hard for voters to understand what her priorities were. Unlike Bernie Sanders – you knew what he wanted to do. You knew what Donald Trump wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and, yep. and, you know, people exactly. talk about Donald Trump, you know, lying on the campaign trail or whatever. But the one thing he was authentic about, I I truly believe, is here's my vision for America. It is we're cutting back on trade. We are oh. uh, cutting down on immigration. We are pulling back from the world. All of that was consistent the entire time. And most of his policies fit into that uh, that bucket.
2: That, uh, that first chapter ends with one of her, one of her, her top aides said, quote, I would have had a reason for running, or I wouldn't have run. Who said that?
5: <laughs> Good job, Bill.
2: Good job. <laughs> just so i you, you just did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sage there's, advice, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah. There's so many times in the book I wanted to ask that question. Who said yeah. that? Who said that? I'm sure Hillary would like to know. Uh, who said that as well. Did you ever talk Did you talk to her for the book?
0: We're not talking about our sourcing at all. We didn't do that for HRC. I'm just we... asking
2: about her.
0: Yeah, we, we're just not talking about it.
2: <laughs> That's the answer. Expertly <laughs> dodged. <laughs> okay. All right, now, I think anybody who who is not a, um, uh, I don't know, a Robbie Mook would have the same question that I have, having read the book, is, you make a lot about analytics versus polling. Mm-hmm. What the hell is analytics? <laughs> this was Robbie Mook's thing, right? Yeah. The new generation, uh, the younger generation, ana- they've Something depended we learned on the from analytics. Obama.
0: Yeah.
6: I mean, I, I, what does it mean? I mean, really? at some level, you're looking at it's like like economics. I mean, it's like it's how do we find efficiencies uh, in in a variety of ways. But how does campaigns- it
2: differ from the way p- campaigns used to be run?
6: Well, I think, look, I think it's the same in that you're always trying to find out as much information about the electorate and the voters as you possibly can, and campaigns have always done that. And it used to be, you know, you write down what somebody said uh, and you put it in a file box. Now you put it into a spreadsheet, uh, you know, when you knock on a door and they tell you they're voting for you or they're voting for somebody else or this is the issue that they care about. So it's it's a little bit more just sort of as we li- live in the big data world, just sort of a more sophisticated way of doing some of what you did in politics in terms of collecting information. Uh, what they do is they – there's sort of – there are a lot of uses for it, but there are two kind of main uses for it. Uh, one is they're trying to do surveys, uh, kind of like polling, but it's really but it's, just a – But it's not polling, is it? But it's not quite polling, right? So what it is is they'll uh, try to determine who's with their candidate, uh, put, them, put them in a silo of people, who is with the other candidate, put them in a silo of people, who's uh, persuadable, put them in a silo. And then they, they try to, uh, you know, figure out how to communicate with each of those groups. Or in the case of this campaign, they basically gave up on persuading uh, people who disagreed yeah. with them. Uh, because it was basically the idea is it's more cost-efficient to get people who agree with you who aren't planning to vote to go vote than it is to get someone who disagrees with you to agree with you and then get them to go out and vote. Um, and, and that makes sense to a degree, but, but increasingly as they make decisions about – Uh, where to send the candidate and her husband, um, where to put TV advertising, uh, what to put in the TV ads, basing it all on information that they've collected about voters. And some of that is the the preference information. But a lot of the information that they're looking at is what magazine subscriptions do you get? Uh, what uh, you know? What what census tract do you live in? Uh, how old are you? What is your racial breakdown? You know, so they're collecting all that information about people and making these determinations about where's the smartest place to go for the buck. As a result of that, you slice and dice and narrowly look at the electorate that way. You start to uh, not communicate with people who aren't in the group, your target group, your base group. Yeah. Uh, I think that has a death spiral effect. And Amy, there was this real tension, right, between. Mm-hmm.
2: Robbie Mook and his analytical, or what the, the, the anal, analyst, Team. I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and some people like John Podesta or Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. right, who were from the old school.
0: Right. And uh, the former president was basically kept kind of sounding the alarm uh, that he. Was getting a different feel on the ground that the analytics weren't quite uh, matching up with what he was feeling,
2: and some of their people on the ground out in the states, like you mentioned, Congresswoman mm-hmm. Debbie Dingell,
0: right? Yes, she also was, you know, so frustrated. Um, a lot of people on the ground too were saying, you know, you're sending me into war without armor. Uh, where are the resources? Where Where is this? Uh, this was a constant problem. We saw it um, in a lot of the swing states, Colorado. Um, a lot of uh, their staffers on the ground were just basically voicing frustration um, that they weren't uh, being ready, readied for battle.
2: I uh, uh, at dinner with uh, some friends Saturday night, and two of them had been had gone to Philadelphia independently to mm-hmm. walk precincts for Hillary, and they were saying what total screw up it was. The voting list they had, the voter list they had, were nothing like the Obama list.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The, they were going to doors that had no. Chance of voting for Hillary or weren't there, or and there were also like Alex Seiswald was in last week too, mm-hmm. uh, saying w- what he kept getting asked about were lawn signs.
0: Yes, yeah, he would yeah. show yeah. up the
6: yard at
2: rallies and people would come. Said, Do you know
6: where I can get a yard? Yeah, yard that was sign? A, they, they a big, wouldn't provide them because no. they felt they weren't uh persuasive that they weren't that, that it wasn't cost efficient to put lawn signs up.
2: Uh, so, so there was, like,
6: no visible
2: sign of a Hillary campaign in some mm-hmm. of these key states. Mm-hmm. And you'd have Trump signs all over the place. Oh, yeah. Right.
6: And I think that has an effect that they're not measuring. I, I mean, I really do. It's a, uh, you know, the state of Maryland many years ago, Bob Ehrlich was the elected governor uh, over Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. And that was yeah. a, an upset election in a Democratic state. Bob Ehrlich had signs all over the state. You couldn't find a Kathleen Kennedy Townsend signed outside of, like, you know, her the neighborhood she grew up in. Um, and... Uh, And I think it has a psychic effect on the supporters of each side, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, you know, it's as if there is a social cost to supporting a candidate who doesn't have lawn signs out there. And we we saw that on social media with with Hillary Clinton that for a long time, you know, her campaign, uh, we talked to people on her campaign who said that there was a social cost, uh, especially during the email scandal, where people who supported her didn't want to say it out loud. They didn't want to get on social media and Mm -hmm. own it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's problematic because it makes it hard to spread the word. So uh, the big question
2: is, um, who's to blame? Who gets the blame for losing an election that should never have been lost? I mean, is there any one person?
0: I think it's it's a few people. Um, I think this book is largely sympathetic um, for Secretary Clinton, but I think she is the candidate, you know, and so she does take some of the blame. I think Robbie Mook takes some of the blame, obviously, because. He ran the campaign and um, relied on analytics um, to the exclusion of other things um, and didn't quite listen to people like President Clinton who were voicing that frustration. Um, Who else do you think? Yeah,
6: I mean, just to pick up on that, because I didn't say it earlier, too, that I think it's safe to say that uh, political campaigns need uh, both science and art, that you have to do persuasion. To win in politics, and that you can move the numbers that you're seeing by doing good persuasion. If you anybody who's been on a campaign that came out of nowhere would know, the first poll shows you have like three percent or five percent. Bernie Sanders would would be able to say this, and then you persuade people to vote for you, and yeah, all of a sudden yeah. the numbers change. Um, in terms of the in terms of the blame, I mean, Hillary Clinton did some some things that really hamstrung the campaign from the beginning, from even before the beginning, the email server. Uh, you know, which which the the Justice Department declined to prosecute, but that doesn't mean it was a good idea Paid either. Speeches. I, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. paid Page speeches. speeches. Um, you know, and and her response when people told her maybe you shouldn't give pre- you know paid speeches to to Goldman Sachs behind closed doors, uh, her response was well they'll hit us for something. Uh, and you you kind of or think about everybody that. Everybody else
2: does it too, right? To yeah, the, I, right, I mean, you think it about it
6: like in a you know, if your president's sitting there going. Well, the American public's mad at me about X, Y, and Z, and like, but that's not a reason I shouldn't do it because if you know they'll be mad at me for something else. I mean, you yeah. should make judgments on what's the right thing to do or not, and I think voters want you to do that. So, I, I think, and she also didn't replace the people that weren't doing well. Didn't didn't entirely replace. Mm. I, I think ultimately. She, she bears the lion's share of the blame, but the, but there's a fair amount to go around. At the end, as you point out, and mm-hmm. the days
2: immediately following the election, uh, the Clinton team uh, were quick to point the blame on. As I, I mean, I'm just from top of my head: uh, James Comey,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, the Russians, um, WikiLeaks, the press, the the media, <laughs> and Bernie. Mm-hmm. Among others. By the way,
3: by the way, uh, we're on Twitter uh, this morning at BP Show. We're getting comments all throughout this interview about you're not talking about the Russians and how they are the Uh, ones that won the election. We're getting there. We're We're getting getting there. there. We're getting there. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've always said it was a factor. It's not like, you know, she lost by less than 80,000 votes. Everything is a factor when you lose by. Yeah. 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 So it, it, of course, Comey and Russia played into this. Uh, but we bring out a lot of other flaws in this book.
2: Especially the, uh, I want to get to, I do want to get to Russia.
3: Relax, relax. We got a whole hour.
2: Um, the emails. I mean, the emails, her server, mm-hmm. and then the DNC emails being Dusted hacked. Emails. And then Podesta's emails. Drip, drip, drip for a mm-hmm. whole month, mm-hmm. and then Comey mm-hmm. one round one, and then right. Comey round two. I mean, if you put all those together with emails, that was a big factor, yeah. wasn't
0: it? Yeah, and you know, she had just launched her campaign in uh, in 2015 at that Roosevelt Island speech that we talked about, and that whole summer she was she could not escape the fog of email. They kept trying to um, push her message through. There was a sense of frustration internally that they couldn't do that well. Um, The email was just drowning everything out. It took them a very long time to actually, she and her husband didn't think that they should apologize at first. So it took them a long time to kind of come around to the fact that they should. A lot of advisors internally were pushing for it. Um, so I think that was a, that was a huge problem for her because she wasted several months, even before she even announced that she was running, she had to talk about it in that famous United Nations speech. Mm -hmm. So she was already sort of, she hadn't even launched her campaign and and was drowned out by it. And And the
2: campaign feels that the media paid too much attention Mm -hmm. to the emails.
6: Absolutely. And, and, and there were times where that, where that felt true. You know, I think if you're a fan of a candidate, or even if you're not a political, you know, you're just a an interested observer of the political system. You'll watch what goes on the media, and you'll think sometimes this is unfair that they're they're paying too much attention to this and not enough attention to that, uh, as if the media were like one guy sitting behind a curtain going, yeah. "We ought to pay attention right, to this." Right. You know, and I know you know people think that the, there was after the Comey letter came out in in uh, October of uh, twenty sixteen, uh, the New York Times had four. Um, you know, four stories about that uh, on the front page, and that front page is frequently uh, recycled on social media now to say, like, look what was going on, and, and yet, you know, Trump was being investigated over Russia ties at the same time, and nobody was talking about that. Yeah. I, I I think with the, the email server, even the Comey letter, Comey coming out and, and basically condemning her, uh, highly unusual, unique, unprecedented move by the FBI director to say, I'm not going to pursue charges against somebody and then condemn them, essentially read an indictment the same, against them, right. uh, which he did in the summer of 2016. Then those two letters that came out at the end of the campaign, one saying we're reopening the investigation, the one same. saying we're exonerating her from that investigation that we reopened, right? You know, So reinforcing it in a way. Um, all of those are an outgrowth of her doing this crazy thing with her email server. I mean, you right. wouldn't have the Jim Comey thing in the first place if it wasn't for the email server, and so you have to go back to that and say, all right. Well, how bad was setting up this pri- private email server? And it is very foreseeable that the Secretary of State is going to have classified information moving through her email. Like, this is not even even email that's not on the classified system. Mm-hmm. And, and this gets into technical stuff. And there shouldn't have been email off classified information in email that was not on a classified system. Uh, I don't mean it shouldn't have been illegally. It's just there's some slippage sometimes. But you have to go back to that and say, what is she trying to do? And her answer was convenience. And I think... Uh, Most sentient people that really think about this will come to the conclusion that she did that to avoid Freedom of Information Act requests and avoid having people look at uh, her emails. And we have a thing in the book there, first time reported ever, uh, that after 2008, she uh, had an aide access her other senior aides' campaign emails so she could oh. go through them and see who was leaking to the press and who was backstabbing and who was saying bad things about her. So the idea that Hillary Clinton is Yale-educated lawyer who has been the subject of probably more investigations into her documents, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that she doesn't understand how information moves. I mean, I'm not saying she's like an expert on how to operate uh, her, her you know smartphone, but she is an expert on how information moves. And the idea that she just kind of casually set up this homebrew server with her own email account is... It's hard to it's hard to reconcile that with the picture of what we know as one of the smartest women uh, yeah. we've ever seen in the public life. Yeah, and so many of the problems
2: that, that ensued because of it would never have happened as you point out. She hadn't done that in the first place. The mm-hmm. book is shattered. We're just halfway through here. Uh, John Allen and Amy Parnes, authors of Shattered, are here uh, in the studio. We haven't even gotten to Joe Biden yet or Bernie Sanders. A lot more about uh, the Russians, and then. How about Hillary's phone call to the Donald after it was all over? Uh, The Bill Press Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
5: He uh, wrote a foreword for a book that uh, basically argued uh, voters should have buyer's remorse when it comes
4: to uh, President Obama's uh, leadership and legacy.
1: Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. What do you say on a Monday, April
2: 24? uh, It is The Bill Press Show. Here with the uh, authors of the new book, Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. It's the first, well, I'm going to be careful here. It's the first book that I know of out on the 2016 uh, campaign. This one looking particularly at the Clinton campaign. But also lots to hear about uh, Donald Trump, of course, and Bernie Sanders. Uh, The authors, co-authors, Amy Parnes from The Hill, John Allen from Sidewire, and Roll Call in studio with us. Thanks again, guys, for coming in. And again, congratulations on a great book, great read. Must get it, must read it, all the way through, just like I have. And loved every page of it. Thank you. Hillary Clinton won, everybody admits, I think, she won all three debates. Oh, running yeah. for president, yeah, it's of the United States, clean Donald Trump's clock, and every one of them mm-hmm. didn't make a damn bit of difference, did it? No, I why mean, not?
0: It's funny. I don't know. It, uh, that's something that we 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 address in this book. But um, you know, she stands up. She actually has these great moments. She works hard. as She works debates, really huh? hard. Yeah. She, you know, but there was this this phrase uh, behind the mm-hmm. scenes, privately, that they used to say in the campaign: "We can't have nice things." Um, so every time she would do really well on something like the debates, like the Benghazi hearing, something else would come and just sideswipe them and take away that energy. And they, that, was, uh, that was frustrating to a lot of people.
2: One example of that uh, is the day that uh, it, the it, 17 intelligence agencies announced that Russia is trying to interfere in our election to help Donald Trump get elected. Mm-hmm. And they thought they had, this is it, man. This is going to be the big story. And the same day, the Access Hollywood tape breaks.
6: Right? And there and and was
2: one other story uh, that broke the same day. It, yeah.
6: It's October 7th, 2016, uh, the craziest day in a wild political election where you have 17, as you said, 17 U.S. intelligence agencies say Russia's interfering in the right. election, specifically uh, was behind the DNC leaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, then. hmm Shortly thereafter, like within an hour or so, uh, you have the Access Hollywood video of Donald Trump saying he likes to grab women uh, inappropriately. Um, thank you. <laughs> it's a family yeah, I get a little, show. I got a, a
3: little nervous <laughs> there when you try to down that path. Because yeah.
6: um, you know me and I might actually. Yeah, no, I know. No, okay. he knows me. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the two of you in front of a live mic and I'm a little on edge. Right, Fair
6: enough. Um, so, so that breaks like, you know, right okay. after that. And both of these are good for her. Uh, And then the third thing that breaks is WikiLeaks starts putting out the John Podesta emails, which 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 they put out uh, you know every day for thirty days until election day, uh, and just has this sort of drip 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 effect. But so
0: much that they had a whiteboard on wheels (laughs) in the Clinton campaign. Really? Yeah, Yeah, they had a whiteboard
6: on wheels where they where they kept track of all of the things. (laughs) that uh, were coming out of the Podesta emails and, like, how to respond to them. And this guy, Glenn Kaplan, was, like, wheeling this thing from room to room. He had a team of, like, 8 or 10 or 12 people that were, like, going through the the Podesta emails. Every day they had to
2: go through the emails to see what was potentially explosive. And they called
6: this room the room of tears, you know, where these people were doing this work. I mean, just this, like, awful job. Can you imagine, like, you know that everything you're going to look at every day is something that – uh, Is going to be hurtful. To, there's no way it's going to be positive for the campaign. That there's stuff in the Podesta emails that's going to be helpful.
3: Best case scenario, it's really embarrassing. Best case scenario, right? Right. So, it's embarrassing. B- but they're
6: mm-hmm. sitting there and, and rightfully think when this intelligence agency report comes out, which by yeah. the way they've been waiting for for a while because they know, yeah. they know that the Russians were behind this. I mean, yeah. they don't. They yeah. know it in their guts right like and Trump had been out there saying like you know hack into hack into Hillary Clinton please which is one of the reasons there's been so much interest in collusion questions yeah. um they see this and they're like finally we can make this argument they, we've got the evidence that we need the russians is, are trying to elect Donald Trump president it's all over. and it's done yeah, this is right, over can right. you imagine you know uh, can you imagine if Michael Dukakis had the Republicans trying to get him elected in 1988 or Bill Clinton in 1992? It would have been over. And so they rightfully think we're going to be able to make this argument. Hillary Clinton goes out in the debates and, and actually and makes the argument repeatedly uh, that, that Donald Trump is benefiting from the Russians and stoking them and that there might be some collusion there. And it, it ends up being meaningless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is right – damn unfair right <laughs> in the sense
2: mm-hmm. i mean my, I, I, my jaw is
6: still on the floor that we concluded that the russians were attempting to help one of our candidates and, and it didn't hurt that candidate and, yeah. and, and it did not hurt exactly
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah right um so joe biden
0: mm-hmm.
2: um some people call him uncle joe Bill. uncle joe did he make a mistake amy <laughs> Could he, have, could he have won the primary and the general election?
0: Some people say yes. It's hard to say, obviously, in this crazy election cycle. But um, he was really frus- frustrated because he he obviously was dealt a blow with his sons. He was dealing, grappling with the, the tragic death of his son, um, was trying to figure out what to do, was trying to kind of come to terms with what he wanted to do. And the, the clock kept running out on him. You know, it was summer and then kind of trickling into fall And he was deciding. And then he felt like while he was deciding, like Clinton had boxed him in. Like he couldn't make his own make up his own mind that he was kind of stuck in a corner. And uh, and that was frustrating to him that he, uh, you know, and he voiced that frustration to a couple of aides uh, around Mm -hmm. him and said, you know, she's playing ugly. Uh, He didn't appreciate it at all.
2: And uh, it was pretty clear to me that I think you point this out, that Obama was pressuring him not to run, too.
6: Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no like, sort of smoking gun there. It's more that uh, Obama had sort of made clear to to friends and, and certainly I think in his public stance toward Hillary Clinton and toward Biden, I think he made it pretty clear that his preference was for her. For her, yeah. Um, and that's and a hard thing for the vice president to deal with because he's been loyal to the president. You would think that the vice president is the heir. In fact, after our first book came out, uh, I remember asking Jay Carney in the in the White House briefing room, um, you know, the president has told the country twice that Joe Biden is the next best mm-hmm. person right. to be yeah. president. Uh, does he no longer believe that or should should Joe Biden be the Democratic nominee in 16? And You know, Jay kind of right. like dodged that, <laughs> dodged that <laughs> oncoming train. But I think it was a reasonable point, which is how can how can President Obama say Joe Biden's the best guy to be the president other than me and then not support him? And if you're, you're Joe Biden, you certainly feel that.
2: So one of the stars of the book uh, early on is uh, Carol Press for the uh, <laughs> two great meals she served uh, at our house in the early, well, the very first couple of meetings of uh, behind the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, there could be an entire book this thick written about the Bernie Sanders
6: phenomenon. You write it
2: too. yeah Bill. Yeah, no, where, where is that <laughs> exactly. book we're just yeah. going to
6: we, we've read some of your books they 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 are awesome, excellent reads <laughs> any any right. listeners who haven't read them should read them but uh, hey i'm supposed to kiss his ass not you but no, no, no. but, 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 but the, a bernie sanders book by you i think would be pretty fetching thank yeah. you tell my
2: publisher so uh <laughs> but the point is bernie scared the hell out of the Clinton campaign. They never correct. saw him coming. No. Huh? And yeah in, in the and they didn't fall, quite they know how to deal with him it comes no. across in your book.
0: Yeah. yeah and then into December you know they they see Iowa coming around the corner and here he comes and, uh, and then into New Hampshire and so they were they were really concerned and I, I think that was a problem for them that they were caught off guard that Obama storyline started creeping in on them again like oh here comes another person coming up to defeat her Uh,
3: And the least
2: likely of all, right? Right.
3: By the time that Bernie really started to sort of make an impact, Hillary had, again, gone back to that inevitable candidate, Mm -hmm. which people didn't like the first time around, and they definitely didn't like it this time either.
0: And we talk to people now. I mean, John and I were in New York a couple days ago, and a a Bernie supporter came up to us and said, yeah, I voted for her. But, like, you know, I just, I voted for her. You know, he wasn't excited to vote for her. He just felt like... Kind of had to. You know, I think
6: most of the Clinton voters in, in two thousand eight were pretty excited to vote for Barack Obama. By the time it rolled around, yeah, there was yeah, a very yeah. very small hardcore group that that pulled you know pulled the lever for Obama and didn't want to. But uh, yeah. he was a Obama was able to capture the imagination of most of the Hillary supporters well, in two thousand eight.
2: One thing I must say, and again, um, the Bernie book, uh, whoever writes it will cover this, but um, like you point out, some of the mistakes, a lot of mistakes in the in the Clinton campaign. I thought it was pretty obvious, too, that there were mistakes in the Sanders campaign in the sense that he could have won Iowa. Mm-hmm. He could have won Nevada.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and if he had won Iowa, I think, Iowa, New Hampshire, which he did win, and then mm-hmm. Nevada, things might have turned out differently. Oh, yeah. And, and the, he lost, I think, Nevada by 700 votes or something like that.
6: And, so. you know, we, we have uh, somebody in the Clinton campaign told us mm-hmm. that, that people talked about South Carolina as her firewall but that Nevada was really the the turning point in terms of uh, in terms of making sure that she won, and that was after she had won Iowa by that slim amount. So your your formulation of the three straight states, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, was even strengthened by the idea if he had won Iowa, but even without winning Iowa, yeah, Nevada. essentially a tie in Iowa, winning New Hampshire by so much, and then winning Nevada, a state with a, a significant minority population in the caucuses. Uh, you know, anything could have happened at that point. And we, we make that point in the book. And it, to, to some extent... Or Massachusetts was another state. Had he won Massachusetts, you know, knew. But, but, but I think the, the thing that, that I would take from that is we see with Clinton this, like, super juggernaut of a campaign and they, they do some things wrong. On the Bernie side, I don't think they were ready to capture the, the, the fire. You know, they, were, they weren't able to direct it in the right places mm-hmm. that maybe there wasn't enough in, infrastructure early on. Uh, and of course they're they're drinking from a fire hose, right? They've yeah. got money coming in, supporters coming in, and they I don't think that they were fully built to handle all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other missing book is the Trump book. <laughs> Those are, are def- coming, which I definitely
2: want owe you lots of them are coming too, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But what I, what I can figure out like first of all, it's pretty clear on the Clinton campaign, they they, they by the way, you can't fault them too much on this. They never really took Donald Trump seriously until maybe it was too late. Well, we have
0: we have a memo in there where uh, one of one advisor is circulating uh, this thing saying, "Fact: Donald Trump can become the forty-fifth president of the United States."
2: Yeah, but he was an outlier, right? That yeah. advisor.
6: That advisor was ignored. Yeah. But that adv- the key thing that that advisor said, in addition to that, in that memo was, uh, "I would add three or four points to any poll to Donald Trump's side on any poll you see." I mean, I these mean, are people who would not tell a pollster. Right. I mean, to... this was just, I mean, just flat out smart, <laughs> smart advice from somebody who was doing it not in the way of I have data to back this up, and so it was treated that way. Sort of, you know, this is kind of like old school hokey stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're you're just guessing at what's going on. Our data doesn't show that, and the guy was like, "There's gonna be there're gonna be flaws with your data because you're not taking into account the human factor that some people don't want to say they're voting for Donald Trump."
3: The thing that a... I think was ultimately fatal in this is that Trump had better data and that the Clinton campaign never stopped to say maybe they have something that we don't have over there. Like when, when Trump was going back to Wisconsin mm-hmm. and the Hillary campaign went to Texas to do a victory lap <laughs> because they thought they might have a shot at winning in Texas or Utah because they thought that they had a shot in Utah. Like why not stop and say Hang on, he's going back to Wisconsin where he doesn't have a shot, which he went on to win. Like, at what did they, did they just discount all of the Trump uh, data or Trump moves?
6: Yeah, I think they very much discounted moves like that. I mean, I think they looked at it and they were like, "This guy's wasting his time. He's helping us out." Like, you know, he's they yeah. they just didn't understand what he was doing for for a lot of the campaign. Uh, one one good example of that is he didn't spend any money uh, on ads until like very late. And they're yeah, watching yeah. over the summer Hillary Clinton's like building a lead and they're and there are two teams like I don't understand he's not spending money. And meanwhile she's spending tons of money and yeah uh and and then, you know, it turns out his strategy wasn't that whatever was wrong with it, it wasn't that bad because he won But I, I, I the book shattered 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 John Allen and
2: Amy Pines par parn, sorry. Inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. But did I'm never sure whether Donald Trump had a strategy or his people around him,
6: or it was just dumb luck.
0: A little of both, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I
6: mean, definitely some luck involved there. Uh, Not necessarily everything done strategically, but it it, it is interesting. I mean, his basic strength was a message that was clear. People understood what he was saying because totally. he had
0: he totally. had the same problems. Oh. He had to get rid of a campaign manager and bring in another one, and, right. You right? know same kind of stuff, and yet, but he, and he did, yeah. Though, yeah, right.
2: He didn't just
6: shuffle people around, and right? he, he echoed Bernie Sanders. I mean, the, you know, there's a line in the book about uh, about how they were the two speakers, you know, uh, the right and left speakers of a in <laughs> synchronicity there, you know, on on the populism stuff and. It worked extremely well for him that he was able to tie into the populism and the you know the idea that Hillary Clinton was corrupt. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know we talk about this. There are, certainly there are Clinton campaign people that think that that Sanders staying in the race and particularly going after corruption as an issue was harmful to her long term because it gave gave Trump something that was nonpartisan to sort of latch onto. But um, you know, his message was so clear. So you are the only
2: people so far I think have reported on what it was like. Inside the suite Mm -hmm. where the Clintons were on election night and how that all evolved. Tell us about it. Amy and then John pick up.
0: So uh, they are – Robbie Mook is meeting, um, doing these hourly conference calls inside. They're all set up uh, down the hall from the suite of where the uh, Clintons are. Um, Hillary Clinton is not made up yet. She's still going over her speeches One speech, really, in particular. The other one, she doesn't expect. They hadn't shown her the concession speech. Yeah. 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 And uh, and they're Uh seeing numbers come in. Florida is a big one. Uh, Bill Clinton is calling advisors, Mm -hmm. uh, people he knows down in Florida, and finding out the not so good news uh, that it's not going well. Uh, And and it starts, you know, they start saying, okay, well, we've lost Florida. Maybe that's an outlier. Maybe North Carolina and Pennsylvania will come through. Yeah. Yeah. And then that that isn't happening. Uh, I don't know if you want to pick up there. Yeah, and
6: so I mean, you know, I think fairly early on, the people that do the data and the people that are looking at the states had a pretty good idea that uh, a lot of what was going on in Florida would be extrapolable to some of those other states, and but they they held off a little bit and said, "Look, it's possible. This is a regional problem, and then it'll be Florida and North Carolina, but that won't that won't translate mm-hmm. to the Rust yeah. Belt." But the, I think they they knew in their guts that that was likely to happen. So. Uh, you know throughout this process, uh, our sources tell us that Hillary Clinton was pretty stoic, pretty quiet, pretty okay, mm-hmm, okay, you know I mean she, she is also smart enough to be to realize yeah. what's going on. Um, and then uh, sort of late in the evening, um, the White House decides it's over. and uh, David Seamus, the White House political director, calls Robbie Mook, the campaign manager for Clinton and says, uh, the president doesn't want you guys to drag this out. yeah And uh, that is not persuasive. So President Obama calls Secretary Clinton and says, essentially the same thing, you need to concede, don't drag this out. We've got, you know, a continuity of government issue here. We've, Trump's mm-hmm. been challenging the election. Boy. He gets off the phone with her. He's clearly not convinced that she has agreed to do that uh, because he calls John Podesta, who has just gone out at the Javits Center and said to everybody, let's wait for tomorrow morning to see if right. the votes change. Yeah. Calls Podesta, says, dude, give it up. And Podesta had worked for him. Uh, at the same time in the Peninsula Hotel where Clinton is, she's she's making the decision to, uh, to call Donald Trump. I mean, it, I think the president's call to her was in fact persuasive. Yeah, she calls Trump, says those words she, she never expected to say, "Congratulations, Donald." And then a little bit later, Obama calls her back, and um, and that's when it really hits her. She, Huma Abedin, her her aide, hands it, uh you know, pulls out a phone, and hands it to her, and says, "It's the president." And there's just a visible reaction from Hillary Clinton, like a wince. She doesn't want to take the call. She she finally accepts the phone and, uh, and says, you know, Mr. President, I'm sorry. Can you imagine
2: no. that call? I mean, that series of calls,
0: yeah.
2: right? Uh, and, Amy, there was one uh, there where also um, Bill was there, of course. Mm-hmm. Bill probably saw the, the train wreck coming before even Hillary mm-hmm. did or maybe anybody else. Uh, And his buddy Terry McAuliffe calls. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, and basically, you know, I guess they were planning a a big party later. Terry was going to come up. Yeah, he was going to go up to the room. And uh, sources tell us that the president, President Clinton, just said, don't bother. Don't (laughs) come up to the room. Uh, There's not going to be any party. They knew by then. and and he's he's a smart guy. He knows he sees what's happening and what's what he's hearing in Florida in the beginning of the night, and then and later, Virginia. Yeah. Remember, Virginia right. was Virginia was tight. Uh, yeah, so no party in the room. And I yeah. mean, this is you know if you, <laughs> uh,
6: I think you've read it. Uh, I think Peter's read it. Mm-hmm. Jamie Bond, the fishbowl glass there's read it. Uh, I think that's the. I I think no matter how you feel about Hillary Clinton. I think that's a part of the book where, like, you, oh, you yeah. just no, feel this, it's just, like, it's all this, like clench of, like, sympathy, um, you know, for somebody who's, like, crestfallen.
0: One of my favorite anecdotes in the whole book, though, is told to us by people in the room. Uh, they're sitting there late at night. She's already lost. And suddenly a hotel um, oh, yeah. <laughs> worker oh. comes in with a tray of sundays. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I was thinking
2: with sprinkles on it. Like, yeah. who ordered the tray of Sundays? We weren't able to figure this out.
0: Like, what what happened? Was an advanced staffer telling them early in the night, like, bring in a tray of Sundays, you know, yeah, to celebrate? Right. right. But, so they're all looking at each other, like, what what's happening? We're all so depressed, Did, and
2: somebody didn't get the memo. I don't know. I might have wondered the Sunday
6: around that time. The,
0: you know i would eat my feelings yeah that's that's what i
3: do yeah i eat the sunday i i eat my
6: feelings your feelings bill's feelings and maybe for jamie's next
2: so um i have to ask you what reaction are you getting from the uh clinton campaign
0: i'm not they're not happy with it um obviously but you know like i said earlier i think if you see the blurbs you think okay this is an unsympathetic book but i'm hearing privately from i think we both are from a lot of clinton people who say actually you know, it is quite sympathetic. You know, someone uh, who it's, used to an aide reached out to me well, to say she cried. Um, you know, and and she felt bad for her. She thinks that she's actually she comes through in this book. Look, it. it's a
2: Shakespearean tragedy, mm-hmm. and you end up you've got to feel end up sorry for the person who's you know the, who this has all happened to right. right it's right. Uh, the whole thing I, again. I love. I don't know who came up. Which of you came up with it. shattered? But it's it's some. It does sum it up. So people are, and, and you do, this tension, and conflict between among the staff members was real,
6: right? Absolutely, they can't I mean, deny it. I mean, no, the, I mean, John Podesta, the uh, campaign chairman, in I guess June of 2016 or so, uh, there's a, a senior leadership retreat for the team where they are going to talk about how to like resolve all the conflicting lines of authority, and he says in front of everybody else, Robbie's passive aggressive. Uh, about the campaign manager and then follows it up and says, I'm just aggressive. And it sort of like mm-hmm. defines this huge fight that's been going on in the campaign for all this time to the point where they actually have to like do, you know, uh, a big presentation about who controls what.
0: And the Super Six, the creation of this mm-hmm. group called the Super Six that no one ever knew about during the campaign. I mean, I don't think there was one report. No of, announcement. That right. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But all these, you know, people who were in charge of different, they're six leaders essentially of the campaign.
2: Well, um, again, you uh, have done a great job uh, summing this up in uh, the book Shattered. You can get it wherever you can get your books, your local bookstore. Hopefully. It's a very, very good read. Your local independent bookstore, uh, Amazon.com or uh, and Barnes & Noble, whatever. Thank, congratulations, guys. What's your Thank next you. stop?
0: Uh, um, we're going to Boston. Um, Boston. Harvard Bookstore on Wednesday. Oh, it's
2: a great bookstore. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. Well. Uh, Stop
3: sorry, Boston. I'm making fun of Boston because James
6: Rude. rude.
3: Uh, oh. Masshole.
6: Oh. Oh. Because that's different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, enjoy the ride.
2: Thank enjoy you. the book. All right. And thank you for being here. Thanks, John thank Allen. Amy Pond. We'll be right this back. See you tomorrow. This is
1: the Bill Press Show. <laughs> The parting shot with Bill Press. This is the Bill Press Show. Well, you know
2: there are a lot of important races this year, and one that suddenly got a lot of attention is for the mayor of Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska, pitting Democrat Heath Mello against Republican Gene Strother. But the real battle is not between in Omaha. It's not between Democrats and Republicans. It's between Democrats and Democrats. Democrats like. Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison, who support Mello as a strong progressive versus Democrats like Nayral or like Daly Coase, who have attacked Bernie for supporting Mello because, as a Catholic, Mello is not pro-choice. Now, Mello says, despite his personal beliefs, he would never do anything to in office to restrict a woman's right to, cho- to choose, but that's not good enough for NARAL and Delhi Kos, who say no matter where you stand on all the other issues important to progressives, you don't belong in the Democratic Party if you're not pro-choice. That's what the purists insist. And, in my opinion, they are dead wrong. Look, make no mistake about it. I am 1,000% pro-choice, and I'm a Catholic. But I'm not about to reject anybody who agrees with 95 or 97% of progressive issues just because they happen to be not to be pro-choice. And that's true on any issue. As a progressive, I'm 1,000% against the death penalty too, but I don't hear any liberals say we can't accept Democrats who support the death penalty. No matter how strongly we feel feel about them, we can't expect every progressive to agree with us on every issue if we really are the big tent movement if we really are the big tent of the democratic party we have to be willing to accept those who like pennsylvania senator bob casey who don't agree with us 100 yes even
1: on the important issue of abortion this is the bill press show look around